Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to chapter 38 of the book of Job. This is the beginning of God responding finally, but it is also very interesting the way that God replies to Job and his three friends. The essence of what God is going to say to Job is kind of summed up in chapter 40 at verse 8, which we've looked at before, where he says, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you can be justified? And that's really the very essence of God's argument against Job. Any time that anyone tries to say that God is not just or not right or not treating them fairly, essentially what they are doing is making themselves judge and jury over God. That's important for us to remember in our relationship with God. It's also important for us to remember when listening to other people talk about God because we're in the midst of a world that is constantly trying to put God on trial. And unfortunately, all too often, Christians allow that to happen. They allow the atheist, they allow the cynic to take the upper hand, and then the Christian attempts to justify or explain or prove God. And of course, God's argument is the same as Paul's argument. In the middle of the book of Romans, Paul talks about the fact that men just don't get to answer back to God. If you try to answer back to God, the answer is, who are you? Early on in the book of Romans, he's already said the creation itself speaks of God and speaks of judgment. The creation itself already proves God's existence and his almighty power. Therefore, since the creation's already making that argument, you don't have to because it's already made. But as soon as the cynic, as soon as the atheist gets that upper hand, he has essentially put God in the witness stand and is now insisting that God answer him. And that's exactly what Job has ended up doing here. Job keeps saying, if God were here, I would make him answer me. And the answer that Job is looking for is, why is this happening to me. Given my innocence, why is it that I am going through this amount of suffering and agony? You will notice that when God responds now to Job, he doesn't answer that question. He doesn't even address that. Apparently to God, that argument's secondary. doesn't really matter. Now, what God is going to do is he's going to give Proof, evidence, that he is in absolute control of everything. And he's going to go as far as the influence that the stars and the planets have over the earth, all the way down to why ostriches are stupid, 
all the way to feeding baby lions. And he's going to take credit for all of that and say, I do all of that. I hung the earth. I created everything, and I'm in control of everything. And so based on his answer, we can just sort of assume then that he's saying, since I am in control of everything, and since I know what I'm doing and you don't, well, then if you suffer, that also must in some way be in accordance with my will, my purpose, my determination. I got an email just the other day again from somebody who said, why is Satan continuing to rage on planet Earth? Once God threw him out of heaven, why didn't he throw him all the way to the lake of fire? I mean, long as he's already throwing him down, why not get rid of him? And I wrote back and said, the, an the answer is kind of obvious. Since we agree that God can do it, that he can destroy Satan, and in the book of Revelation we read that he's going to destroy Satan, that he's going to put him into the lake of fire, since we know that that's God's ultimate plan, if he hasn't done it yet, we have to assume that it's because the existence of Satan serves God's greater purpose. If it didn't serve his purpose, he wouldn't exist. Same argument here. Why does suffering exist? If God is absolutely sovereign, and if God is absolutely good, and if God loves his people, then why do his people suffer? And the answer is because it serves his purpose. Because he's never going to directly respond to that argument. In fact, Job's plea so far has been, if I could find God, he would then have to answer me. I would ask him questions and he would have to answer me. And God shows up and doesn't answer any of Job's questions. Instead, God says to Job, I'm going to ask you and you're going to answer me. So God completely turns the tables on Job. Why? Because you don't get to question God. He's going to do what he's going to do. And you can't stop him. And you can't change it. Since none of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to your height or one day to the extent of your life, I can't even grow hair. And I wanna. But the fact that we can't, by force of will and by our own determination, the fact that we can't means that God is going to do whatever God is going to do, and you can spend the rest of your life beating your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty, or you can finally realize that you've changed nothing and get down on your face in front of the God who's going to do whatever he's going to do. And if he's taking you through trials and he's taking you through struggles, that's part of humanity. That's part of what serves his greater purpose and someday, we hope to understand it all. But I expect that once we're in eternal joy, once we're in eternal glory, I hope that we just really don't care about all that stuff we went through. I think at some point we'll be satisfied to be in his presence and be accepted and be loved and have God wipe away every tear. And right about then, I think all those questions that we've been carrying around in our heads our whole lives are just going to dissipate in favor of your God. I'm not. Whatever you had to do to get me here, good plan. Amen. I'm with you on what you did. 
So God is going to start replying. Now, as I said last week, there is an implication since there seems to be a a storm coming from the north that Elihu mentions chapter 38, remembering that there are no chapters or verse divisions in the original writing. Chapter 38 makes mention of the fact that the Lord shows up and answers in a whirlwind And in the next chapter, it's going to be called a storm. So this isn't a little dust up that's happening. This is one of those Middle Eastern windstorms that's happening. And in the midst of all that storming and ruckus that's going on, God answers. So God does not show up, in this case, in some still small voice. God, at this point, shows up in absolute sovereignty, stirs up even nature in order to give his answer and to defend the fact that human beings just don't get to reply to him. Because he starts out with the question, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? So everything that Job's been saying so far, as good as his arguments have sounded, Ultimately, Elihu said, you're wrong because your ego is out of whack, your pride is out of whack, and you need to humble yourself before God, and therefore, your lack of humility shows a lack of knowledge. God shows up and confirms that fact and says, who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Now, I think the King James says, darkens my counsel. The NASB just has, who is this that darkens counsel? In other words, there is good counsel, there is correct counsel, but who is this that is taking my holy right enlightenment and darkening it? Yes, sir. My translation says, who is this that obscures my plans? That obscures my plan. Yeah, that's that's basically the idea, that, that takes my counsel, that takes my plan, and then darkens it, obscures it. So chapter 38, starting at verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So everything Job and his friends have said up until this point hasn't changed God one little bit. There's been tremendous arguments made in this book so far. Some good, some bad, some right, some wrong, but all well thought out. And the end of it is God showing up and saying, there's no knowledge behind any of this, so much so that, as I said before, God doesn't reply to their argument. He never addresses the question of innocence and suffering. And you would think that would be the first thing he'd come talk about because that's what they've been arguing about. That's the thing that Job said. If God were here, he'd have to explain this to me. Why am I going through all this, though I'm innocent? God doesn't even bring it up. Doesn't even address it. Doesn't even say, let me respond to your argument. Why? Why doesn't he respond? Because those are the words that darken his counsel, and they are words without understanding, without knowledge. Now, I also think at this point it would have been helpful if God said, let me give you some knowledge. Let me give you some understanding. Let me explain some basic ways of God. But he doesn't do that, which I find really interesting. Instead, he starts laying out evidences of his absolute sovereignty, knowing that as he overwhelms these men with his evidence, 
they're going to end up on their face in front of him because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So rather than appealing to their intellect, he is appealing to their realization of their worthlessness and his complete and utter holy sovereignty over everything and that he does everything and that they do relatively nothing. Because he starts out with, what did you ever do? Where were you? And he's going to ask questions, piercing questions, difficult questions. The planet Earth, we now know scientifically, is just hung out in space. And through the years, there have been a lot of different theories about what Earth is hung on. Or is Atlas underneath the Earth holding it up? When the Earth quakes, is that because Atlas shook? And God is going to argue, you can't even tell me what I hung the earth on. You don't even know where the pillars are that hold it in place. You, you don't even know that. And yet you think you're so smart that you're going to put me on trial? You're going to start demanding answers from me? And you don't even know the essentials of the planet you live on? Here's what he says. Gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Don't miss that that's God turning the tables on Job. Job kept saying, if God were here, he'd answer me. God shows up and goes, no, you're going to answer me. You're not going to question me. I'm not going to sit down and listen to your measly questions. Where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth, and then he says, and I think rather sarcastically, tell me if you have understanding. In a few minutes, God's going to go so far as to say, oh, yeah, you've been around forever. You're like the ancient of days, so you must know all this stuff. Tell me. It's just God being sarcastic, which is why I continue to argue that my sarcasm is one of my most godly qualities. I, okay, never mind. Fine. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's the beginning of Genesis. At the very beginning, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. You will notice that there was nobody there when he made the heavens and the earth. There was nobody there to check with. <coughs> there was nobody there for him to say, what do you think of my plan? Do you approve? Do you think I ought to put this star here or should I move it over there? Nobody was there to tell him what to do, and yet he did everything. You showed up, born on planet Earth, you walk outside and you look up at the sky, and the sky exists, and it exists in perfection. And what I mean by that is you don't go out one night and look up at the heavens and then go out the next night and find it completely discombobulated. You go out every day and you look up at the sky and it's working like a giant clock rotating. And you had nothing to do with that. You did nothing. And God figured all that out. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Isn't that a sarcastic thing for God to say? It is absolutely sarcastic. Tell me about this since you know. <clears throat> Who set its measurements? Why is the earth exactly this 
big. And as it rotates and it creates its gravity, and then there's this other planet not that far from us, the moon. If the moon were bigger and had more gravitational pull, eventually it would get closer to planet Earth and then crash into it. Why is it exactly the size that it is so that its orbit continues all these thousands of years and it doesn't crash into the Earth? Why is the Earth exactly the size it is for how far from the sun it is so that as it goes in its elliptical orbit around the sun, it doesn't get pulled any closer to the sun till it burns up and doesn't get any further from the sun so that we're into a permanent ice age and everyone's killed off. Who figured out exactly how much the planet needs to weigh and how fast it needs to rotate as it goes around the sun, as the moon goes around it, and nothing goes wrong in all of that. No, nothing crashes into something else. Who figured that out? Who did the math? Who got out the yellow pad and pencil and said, okay, this is the only way this is going to work? That's God's argument. Who set the measurements? Since you know. Who stretched the line on it? When you are building anything, I've been doing a lot of work around my house lately. A lot of fixing and constructing and everything else. And I have found out over the course of years that when I do something like that, it's good to plan first. It's good to know what I'm doing and measure. Measure twice, cut once. I found that out the hard way. Don't take your best estimate and then start cutting because then you got to buy more wood and it, you feel stupid going into Lowe's time after time and having those guys who know what they're doing stare at you and go, you don't know what you're doing, do you? Been there, done that. Yeah, well, the way that you figure that out is by laying a line to it, laying a plumb line, measuring these things. That's what God's saying. He's saying, who stretched out the line on the universe? Since the whole universe works, since galaxies are out there rotating around galaxies. He said, who figured that out? Who laid a line on it? Who put the measurements to it? Who figured out how all of that works? Well, it's clearly not you, Job. It's clearly nobody on the planet. It's none of the creatures. And of course, the implication is, I did that. You didn't do it. On what were its bases sunk? That's what I was saying earlier. What am I using for pillars? Since I've hung it out there in the nothing, since it's just out there in space spinning and rotating, and since nothing is holding it up, he says, well, then, how did I sink the bases? The same way that if you might make a fence or you might put up a house, it's always good to sink some of the base down into the ground so it's stable. He's saying the earth is stable at this point. What did I sink it into? Again, a really sarcastic question, but a really good question. Into what did God sink the planet so that it stays stable in its orbit around the sun? We don't know. Scientists still don't know. They take their best guess and their best estimate. God says, on what did I sink the bases and where is the cornerstone of it? Who laid the cornerstone with everything you ever build? Everything. There's always got to be some central corner, some central location on which the whole thing sort of is built off of and rests. And the, the Bible has a lot to say about chief 
cornerstones and Christ being the chief cornerstone. And that's all architectural language to talk about the importance of building something from scratch. What's the first stone you laid and built everything off that? He said, okay, I've built the universe. Where'd I start? Where'd I lay the cornerstone? Of the universe? Okay, we don't know. We, we just don't know. But I laid something first. Who laid that cornerstone? And then he says that when he did that, when he made the planets, when he made the creation, when he laid the cornerstone, then the morning stars sang together. That's a reference to the angelic host. All sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. I think the reason God included that was because when you go back and you look at the book of Genesis, each time that God does something or makes something, he checks it and says, it's good. Every time he makes something in the early part of the book of Genesis, he keeps saying, it's good. He looked at it, it was very good. So good, in fact, that the angelic hosts that were with him and the sons of God sing and shout for joy because God is being his own creative self. And they are worshiping him in that creation. A few years ago, I went to see my friend Roger Skeppel here in Nashville. And he was teaching on marriage from the beginning of the book of Genesis. And uh, he made that point. Everything that God made was good. Everything he created, he said, it's good. It's good. And then he asked the question, at what point did God say it's not good? And the first time you see him saying that is when he makes a man and says, it's not good for man to be alone. Isn't that interesting? I just thought I'd throw that in because that's the first time that God says, okay, that part's not good. So then he solves that problem, but it's also God that solves that problem. Why are there men and women? Why is there marriage? God did that. And God did it because it was good. The sons of the morning all sing together. The sons of God shout for joy. Who enclosed the sea with doors? Years ago, I was in Southern California, down by Venice Beach. And I actually heard somebody say, this is a quote, they actually said, oh, isn't this nice? The water comes right up to the shore. Good, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah. God right here takes credit for that. He says, yeah, the water comes right up to where I let it come up to. Can you repeat that again? Isn't that nice? The water comes right up to the shore. Uh, okay, that's my place. <laughs> of course, the reality is wherever the water stops, that would be the shore. That's the point. That's the point. After, after the big one, it'll be in Arizona. But then it'll be nice that it comes right up to the Arizona shore. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, the point is, God here is taking credit for how far the water goes. God is taking credit for the fact that there is land. You go back and you read in the book of Genesis, and it says that the water was covered in the deep, in the water, and then God held back the water so that land came into being. And God takes complete credit for the fact that he put the barriers on the water so that the land would exist. And by the way, since you said 
after the big one, the water's going to come all the way up to Arizona. If and when that ever happens, that'll be God's plan. I don't know how many of you remember the movie a few years ago about global warming and how the ice caps were warming. And once that happened, that sea levels were going to rise and there was a flood through New York. And well, if that happens, that's God's plan. But you know what? It's not going to happen as long as God determines that the land is not going to be flooded because God is in charge of making sure that there are doors and barriers to keep the water back from the land that he's determined to create. Look at what he says about it, because he goes on for a while about this. Who has enclosed the sea with doors when, bursting forth, it came out from the womb? In other words, he's saying, back when I created it, back when the earth sprang forward and he separated the waters above from the waters below, and then he separated the waters from the land, he said that was like water on the planet coming into being, like a birth, like coming out of the womb. And then he separated the waters above from the waters below. Verse 9 says, and I made a cloud over it to be its garment. And I made thick darkness its swaddling band, one of the great mysteries on planet Earth to this very day, one of the unexplored frontiers, is the depth of the ocean. We still can't get down to the very depths of the deepest trenches in the ocean because the pressure's too high. And yet, every time we send something further and further into places like the Marianas Trench and stuff, they find creatures down there. There's things living down there. Why? Whoever gets to see that? God did it for his own knowledge, his own entertainment, his own joy. He decided to make these creatures that live so far down in the darkness that nobody ever sees it. So he says, look, the clouds above, which are full of water, are like a garment for the sea. And then there is this deep darkness underneath the sea that it's wearing like a diaper. It's wearing like a swaddling band. And so it's a perfect description of his absolute control over Every aspect of the water, the sea, the land, and he talks about it like it's his child, like it's his creation. I clothe it. I swaddle it. It came to birth. I placed boundaries on it. Verse 10. I placed boundaries on it. I set a bolt and doors. Remember a moment ago, he said, who enclosed the sea with doors? Now he said that it's a locked door. It's a bolted door. Therefore, the sea can only come to where it can come to. And it can't go past that because that's where the land is. And God says, I did that. That's the whole point. God keeps saying, I did that. Okay, how many of you have any control whatsoever over sea level and whether or not the sea encroaches on the shores of New Jersey. Anybody here got any control over that? He said, I placed boundaries on the sea. I set a bolt and doors. And I said to the sea, to the waters, thus far you shall come, but no further. That's why the water only comes up to where the water comes, because God himself said, you can come up to here, but no further. Now, the fact that God speaks that way about his control of water means that he takes credit and personally is involved in 
how far water intersects with land. Do you get that? I mean, it's so personal to him that he doesn't just say, I built that into nature. That's a mechanical thing that just takes place. He said, I speak to it. I control it. I tell it. You can come all the way up to here, but you can't go any further than that. I knew what made to say to the hurricane, peace, be still. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Jesus did that, didn't he? Absolutely. I said, you shall come this far and you can't come any further. And here shall your proud waves stop. Okay, if you would, Tom, look up Genesis 1, 9 and 10. I've already made mention of this, but this is part of the creation ordinance. If you would, Micah, look up Psalm 104, verse 9. And you're going to see that even David makes mention of the fact that God is in control of the sea and the waves. And just like Sandy just said, when Jesus was on the planet, he also showed himself to be in complete control of the sea and the waves and the storms. And you'll notice that what he did was he spoke to it the same way that God is speaking to the water in the land here. What does Genesis 1, 9 and 10 say, Tom? Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Okay, so it was God who in his creation took the time to separate water and land. Here he's saying the same thing. I'm the one who does that. I'm the one who tells the water how far it can come. Micah, what does Psalm 104, verse 9 say? It says, starting in 8, The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. So they went down in the valleys, the rivers that go through the valleys. He set boundaries on them so that the water moves the way that God determines it's going to move and it doesn't again cover the earth because in the creation the water covered the earth until God separated the land from the water as Tom read. (coughs) So God again over and over again keeps saying I'm so in control that I'm in control of the natural elements, the clouds. In a moment he's going to say the snow. He's even going to say I use hail as a weapon. I mean, he's so in charge of the things that we consider just nature, but he is in charge of every single aspect of it, including where the water goes. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Here God says, I'm in charge of every new day. Every time the sun comes up on the place that you live, I'm the one who's in command of the morning. Have you ever caused the dawn To know its place. So when the darkness is on the land and then the light starts coming, God says, I'm in charge of that. I tell the dawn where its place is. That's not even language that we conceive of. We just think that's the natural rotation of the planet. And that's the planet going around the sun. And that's where we get seasons. And that's where we get day and night. And that's just nature. And God says, that's not nature, that's me. Every time you see the sun rise, I'm in charge of that. But the way that he personalizes it and says, did you ever cause the dawn to know its place? 
I mean, I've caused my children sometimes to know their place. I've told my children, go to your room. Okay, that's their place. I've done that. I've put dishes up in the cupboard because that's their place. But he speaks of the dawn, something that ethereal, something that cosmic. He talks about that as something that he is so in control of that he keeps it in its place. How many of you would be willing to say you've ever exerted that kind of authority? You don't even know what it is. You don't even know how to go about beginning to do that. God says, I do it. I'm in charge of that. Have you ever in your life... Stop for a day at the prayer of Joshua. Absolutely. Yeah, he's in charge of the cosmos. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked are shaken out of it? That's really, really interesting language because the Bible says over and over that wicked people do their deeds in the dark, in the night. And then he says, I bring about the dawn, and it's like the shaking out of a blanket. And the dawn and the light shakes out the wicked so that they have to stop their wicked activities because now they're in the light. In a minute, he's going to make that shaking out a blanket kind of equation. He says that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed, the dawn The day, it is changed like clay under the seal. Uh, All that means is if you had some clay and you were going to make a mark on it, you were going to put an insignia or a seal on it, you change the shape of the clay. And he's saying when the dawn comes, it changes the wickedness that's going on on the planet. There's actually an intrinsic positive value to the light that God brings to the planet every single day. It shakes out the wickedness of men. It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. In other words, he's shaking that garment out, and the evil come forth out of it. And from the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. That idea of uplifted arm is people shaking their fists at God, people raising their hands and saying, I won't have this man rule over me. That's all part of their intrinsic wickedness. That then when the light comes onto the planet, they are shaken out, but the light is also restricted from them. So that they're never really truly enlightened. It's just that their deeds are shown to be truly evil deeds And then God is going to break that uplifted arm as they lift their hands against him. And again, God's saying, I do that. You do that? Do any of you do that? No, you get up in the morning and look for coffee. You get up in the morning and brush the sleep from your eyes. That's what you do. But God brings his light every day in order to restrict the growth of evil on the planet. And every day shakes them out while he's restricting his own light from them. And then he breaks their upheld angry arms. Have you entered into the springs of the sea? That's interesting language too. What he's saying essentially is that underneath the sea, there are sources of water that act as springs 
into the oceans and the seas. Not only rivers that we all know flow toward the sea and continue to replenish the sea, but he says underneath the sea there are also springs of water that spring up and replenish the sea all the time. Do you have anything to do with that? No, but he says, I know that. I do that. I know where those springs are. I know how the sea was built. I know how the planet works. I'm the one that did that. Have you ever entered into the springs of the sea? Say that again. Job even knew what he was talking about. I'm not sure we know what he's talking about. Yeah. But you can see why in a little bit Job is actually going to say, oh, okay, okay, you got me. <laughs> you're, you're right. I'm completely wrong. I got nothing. I got nothing to say. Have you ever walked in the recesses of the deep? Okay, how many of you have ever walked on the ocean floor? Spring vacation? Anybody? Ocean floor walking? No? He says, I have. Don't you think, by the way, since he created every species of fish, and since human beings keep discovering new species of fish, including just recently, this is just a couple of months ago, there was a big news article that they had rediscovered a fish that they thought had long ago became extinct. And they found one, and they were all excited. And my immediate thought was, if you found one, there's at least two more. <laughs> Which means they ain't extinct. You just didn't know about them. God knows every species of fish... <coughs> Since he knows all the stars by name, do you think he knows all the fish by name? Uh, probably. He goes walking in the deep, which means there is no place in the deepest part of the sea where any creature can exist where he is not. It's like David saying, though I make my bed in hell, thou art there. Where do I get away from you? So have you ever gone walking in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death ever been revealed to you? God's in charge of the gates of death. He's in charge of when somebody's born. He's going to argue that in a minute. He's in charge of when somebody dies. And he's in charge of whether or not they come into his presence or exist outside his presence forever. And do you think once a person is determined to die, once a purpose, okay, there's a sentence coming any moment now. <laughs> once God has deigned that somebody is going to die, once he has purposed that this is the moment of somebody's death, have you ever seen anybody yet successfully resist? Have you ever seen anybody yet say, no, I'll take another three weeks, thank you. By my own will, I'm going to do what I want. When death shows up, God's in control of it. By the way, you get to the end of the book of Revelation. It says that death and hell are thrown into. Hades itself are thrown into the lake of fire. That's how in control of death God is. Have the gates of hell been revealed to you? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Oh, that's so, so interesting, especially a God who has encased himself in light that no man approaches. And then he says that to be sent out of his presence is to be sent into outer darkness. 
And then he sets up a gate to make sure that once you're in the darkness, you can't get back into the light. Have you ever seen the gates of that deep darkness? No, (laughs) no, we don't do that. We're not in charge of that. But he is. Have you ever understood the expanse of the earth? In other words, have you ever measured it thoroughly? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Just a moment ago, he said he's got the gates to darkness. So that once he sends somebody into darkness, they can't find their way back to light because there are gates keeping them in the darkness. But then what is the dwelling of the light? Now, we know that light requires energy. We know that darkness is the natural state of all creation. Where there is nothing, there is darkness. But wherever there is light, there is energy creating that light. So God creates his own light, which is why at the beginning of the book of Genesis, he says, let there be light. For him to say, let there be light, there couldn't have been any light yet, which means it was all darkness. And he's in control of the light, and apparently it has a dwelling place where he keeps light. Do you know the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? So he has a place, he has a dwelling where he keeps the light, he has a dwelling, he has a place where he keeps the darkness... And he's in charge. How much of that do you do? That's the question you have to keep asking yourself. As he keeps giving examples of his absolute control and sovereignty over everything that exists, the question keeps being asked, and what is any of that for you? What have you done in any of this? And remember, he's saying this to Job, who is saying, if God was here, he'd have to answer me some things. And God's saying, answer me now. What do you control of any part of your life? Since you have no control over creation and you have no control even over yourself, how dare you put me on trial for doing what I want with what's mine? I control absolutely everything. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory? That you take it, take light. That's such an interesting verb to me, that you would restrict light the same way that he said he restricts the water and closes it off with doors and bolts. He's now saying that he restricts where the light and where the darkness is, and then he makes it go to its particular territory where it's been assigned, that you may discern the paths to its home. It's that same idea. There's a dwelling. There's a home for light. And You don't take the light to its territory, and you can't even discern the paths to take the light to its proper home. You know, you know, verse 21, you know, for you were born then. God's being sarcastic again. He keeps doing this. God says, you know, because you were born then. Back when I was doing everything, back when I laid the foundation of the earth, back when I hung the whole universe, back when I divided light and dark and water from land, and back when I did all that, you know, you should know the answer to these questions. I mean, after all, you were born then, right? No, of course not. You weren't even around, which is why I kept emphasizing when God did everything that he did in the beginning of the book of Genesis, he didn't check with anybody. 
He didn't ask anybody. There was nobody there to approve his plan. He did it all by himself the way he wanted to do it. And nobody could say, what are you doing? Nobody could stop his hand or ask him what he was up to. So he says, you know, because you were born then, and the number of your days is great. God is so sarcastic. No, only God gets to have the name the Ancient of Days. Only God gets to have that infinite number of days behind him. And because you don't have the infinite number of days behind you, that makes you, ipso facto, less than God. He's already got you just on birthdays. He's already got you based on existence, based on being, based on how long he's been here versus how long you've been here. You haven't been here long enough to ask him what he's doing. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Again, a fascinating question. I woke up this morning. It was the first time this winter that there was a little tiny bit of snow on the ground. And I thought of this verse because I've been reading this all this week. There was a little bit of snow on the ground. You know, in Chicago right now, the wind chill actually makes Chicago colder than the Arctic Circle. It's so cold up there now. And snow on top of snow. Why are they socked in with snow and we got just a, a little dusting? Because God's in charge of snow. He's in charge of where he keeps it, where the storehouses are, and then how he lays it out. And then he says, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Okay, if you walk outside and it's snowing, that's kind of a happy thing. It's kind of, hey, it's snowing. And immediately you know what you'll do. You'll put your tongue out, try to catch some snow on your tongue. You know you will. It's a happy thing. Oh, it's snowing. Oh, it's gotten in my hair. It's, oh, it's snowing. Then it turns to hail. What are you doing? You're running for cover. You're running away. There's stones falling out of the sky. Ice stones pelting you. God is about to say, yeah, I use hail as a weapon. I store up the snow and I use hail against my enemies. Have you ever seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of distress, in other words, when I want to distress people, for the day of war and battle. Oh, that's really interesting language. Okay, Tom, look up Joshua 10, 11. We're going to see examples of places where God uses hail against his enemies. Isaiah 30, 30, if you would, Steve, if you would look that up. Carol, look up Ezekiel 13, 11. Jeff, if you would, look up Revelation 16, 21. That's right, I recruited Jeff into the process. We'll start over here with Tom. He's going to read Joshua 10, 11 for us, where God's going to say he brought hail against his enemies. As they fled from before Israel <coughs> while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. <coughs> there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So there's just been a battle, a war, and at the end of it, after they routed their enemies and their, and their enemies were running away, God decided not enough of them died in the battle. So he sent hailstones out of heaven 
and ended up killing more than he killed in the battle. God uses hail as a weapon. <clears throat> Isaiah 30, 30, Steve. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. So there it is again. God's saying that he uses hailstones. We get the idea that God uses fire. He can use lightning from the sky. But it says he's going to bring a storm and he's going to bring lightning and he's going to bring hail on his enemies for the specific purpose of causing distress among his enemies. Ezekiel 13, 11 is going to say something quite similar. Carol. Say unto them which daub it with untempered mortar that it shall fall. There shall be an overflowing shower and ye, O great hailstones, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall rend it. He's talking about the building of the wall around Jerusalem, and he's saying, you haven't built the structure securely. All you've done is whitewashed it to make it look good. But God is going to knock your wall down by bringing wind and hail against it, and you're going to find out what it's really made of. And finally, Revelation 16.21, speaking future, speaking eschatologically, God is going to speak of using hail. Jeff's got that. Revelation 16, 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because his plague was extremely severe. I'm going to say 100 pound stones falling out of sky is a pretty severe plague. But now you can see why God would say that he uses hail, he keeps it in his storehouses, and he has reserved it for the time of distress and for the day of war and battle. He says that to Job before he does it, but then we've looked at all these examples of him not only doing it, but saying he's going to do it in the future again. Yes, ma'am. Again, using the, the hail as a weapon or whatever, referring back to Passover when he, one of the plagues where he put the hail down and it was burning fire at the same mm -hmm. time. That, to me, is just, <laughs> can't imagine. Yeah, I, I think 100-pound ice stones is bad enough. That trumps. <laughs> but when they burst into flame on top of that, yeah, I mean, it, it's just bad. But it's also God using nature because nature itself is subject to God. And so God says, I use the things that you consider the natural forces of the planet these are not random things. These are things that are happening on purpose in the places that I want them to happen because I'm working out my will. Hmm. I'm determining my control over all things. And so men, <coughs> men think that we have something to do with global warming, but it sounds like God has control of that, huh? Yeah. 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 And you know what? When God is done with men, I think this old planet is going to shake us off He's going to destroy it with fire. And then he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. So being in that the Bible speaks that way of God's control over the planet, I don't think the planet is real concerned about little us walking around doing whatever good or evil we're doing. The planet itself belongs to God. He'll preserve it. There, that was my global warming response for any of you who... <laughs> Verse 24, we got to get done here. Where is the way that the light is divided? 
or the east wind scattered on the earth. He's still talking about storms here. And he's talking about the lightning coming down and how the light of the lightning divides the skies. And he says, who does that? Who's in charge of that? Obviously, he is. And the east wind, which would bring in the storm, is scattered across the earth. Storms happen all over the planet, wherever he's determined to send them. Who has cleft a channel for the flood after all the rains and the storms come? Well, then that water's got to go somewhere. And he says that he has clefted channels, rocks, streams, everything else to take that water down into the seas again. Or who knows the way for the thunderbolts? He's in charge of wind and rain and thunder and lightning and even the dissipation of the water that he brings in the storm to bring rain upon the land without people. This is really, really interesting since you just mentioned that men might be doing some damage to the planet through global warming, all that kind of thing. Now God's going to say, I also do all this where there are no men. So this doesn't have to do with men. There are still going to be storms in the desert where there's no people at all. That's his argument. To bring rain on a land without people, on a desert, without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and the desolate land, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout. In other words, the planet is his, and when the land itself cries out to him, When the land itself is parched and in need, he says, I supply for it. I go to the desert places and I turn them green when I want to, the way I want to, where I want to. And there are no men there. In other words, nobody's willing to do it. Nobody's telling him to do it. Nobody's in control of him doing it. These are just things he does because of his relationship with the planet itself. And the planet itself has need. And so he supplies for the planet. Verse 28, does the rain have a father who has given birth or begotten the drops of dew? When you get up in the morning and you walk outside and there's dew on the grass, you probably think, oh, it's kind of chilly last night. That's God saying, I did that. I put water on the grass. Why? Because the grass needs watering. Because the grass needs to be fed. Does the rain have a father? Who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? In other words, who gives birth to the ice? And the frost of heaven, who gave it birth? Water becomes hard like a stone. Okay, now God's taking credit for the fact that ice works. Ice freezes, water becomes hard as a stone, which, by the way, is almost a paradox. Water, if you're falling a couple hundred feet, would you rather fall on a rock or into water? Into water, that's going to make your fall more uh, easier to take. He says, yeah, but water itself, I can make it harder than a rock. I can freeze it. And the surface of the deep is then imprisoned when the ice forms on the top of a lake then the water that is underneath it is imprisoned because of the ice that God created when he made the water hard as a rock. God takes credit for all that. In other words, God takes credit for the fact that you can go ice skating. He's in charge of the fact that lakes, rivers, seas get covered in ice. 
Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? I used to read this in the King James. The King James Version says, can you bind the sweet influence of the Pleiades? I have loved and been confounded by that verse my whole Christian ministerial life because I don't know what that is. What is the sweet influence of the Pleiades? Remember a few minutes ago I was talking about the fact that when we went to a certain beach, the tide would come in and the tide would go out. Well, now scientists have told us that tides are controlled by the moon. So the sun, the moon, the stars, the things that are up in the sky actually have influence over the things that are happening on the planet. Apparently there's something going on on the planet that is under the influence of a star cluster, the Pleiades. And God says, do you do that? I built that into my creation. Not only are we not in charge of it, we don't know what it is. Anybody here want to tell us what the influence of the Pleiades is? Because then he's going to go on to other, what we would consider astrological, but they're astronomical things. He says, can you bind chains of the Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season? In other words, God knows that as we go around the sun and as the planet turns, every day as you look up into the sky, you're going to see like the North Star. But over the course of the seasons, the North Star is going to move in the sky, depending on where you are in the orbit around the sun. And he knows that. You don't lead forth the constellations, but I move the constellations across the sky. Every one of them in their season. Do you guide the bear with her satellites? He's talking about Ursa Major at that point. Are you in charge of Ursa Major? Look, it's real basic. His question at this point is, what do you do to affect the heavens? What? Nothing. You do nothing to affect the heavens. You can go outside and scream at the sky all you want, and the stars are not going to move for you. And he says, but they move for me. I'm in charge of them. I tell them where to be. I put them in the sky, and I'm in charge of their rotation as the seasons change. Every one of them moving. The constellation's moving in its season. I guide Ursa Major. I guide the bear with all her satellites. Do you know the ordinances of heaven? That word ordinances is the rules. Do you know the rules by which the heavens operate? Well, no, you don't. Even the best of scientists at this point can simply track the reality of what's going on in heaven, constantly discovering you know, something, oh, we found a new star. Oh, we found a thing that we think might be a planet. Oh, we found, oh, wait a minute, you know Pluto? Okay, that's not a planet anymore. You know, just, we don't know what's going on out in the heavens. We don't know what the ordinances of the heavens are. God knows every bit of it. And he says, can you fix their rule over the earth? Are you in charge of telling the stars where to go? No. The answer is no. And of course, the unspoken basis of God saying this is, I'm in charge of it. You're not. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds? The implication being, I lift up my voice to the universe. The stars and the heavens and the cosmos respond to my voice. You can't even yell to a cloud. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds? 
so that an abundance of water may cover you. How many here have ever seen a, a rain dance? When I was living out near the deserts out in California, we would go into Arizona, and you would see tribes out there that would do rain dances because they believed that they could somehow influence the clouds to spill their water, bring some clouds to our area, give us some rain. We're too dry here. We're not growing our crops here. We need some rain. And he's saying all of that talking and dancing and convincing doesn't do a thing. You're not in charge of the clouds. You can't yell at the clouds and make them rain. You can't lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water covers you. Can you send forth lightning that the lightning would go and say to you, here we are? Just try that one out. Go out and yell at the sky for a while and see if the lightning will reveal itself to you. Who? Now that he has said, I'm in charge of the cosmos, I'm in charge of nature, I'm in charge of the skies, I'm in charge of all of that, now he asks the piercing question, who puts wisdom into the innermost being? Wow. He went right from who's in charge of absolutely everything to how do you know anything? If you have any sense of wisdom, any sense of understanding, if you have any of that in your inner being, if you're a, an intelligent person who knows some things about God or science or nature or art, if you have any sort of wisdom inside you, he said, did you put that there? No, he said, I, I'm in charge of that. Who put wisdom in the innermost being? And who has given understanding to the mind? How often have you heard me say, if you woke up this morning and knew your own name, that's God. That's what he's saying. If you have understanding in your mind, if you know math, if you can string a couple of words together, if you know your own phone number, if you can find your way home, if you know how to drive a car, if you can recognize your own children, if you have any sense of anything at all, that wisdom in your head, God said, I do that. Have you ever met anybody who couldn't do those things? I have. I've met, I've met people who God took away that wisdom they once had because of injury or because of age. And here's God saying, I'm in charge of all that. Verse 37, we're nearly done. Who can count the clouds by wisdom? Even though he's given you some wisdom, some understanding, you're still not even able to tell us how many clouds are in the sky. And who's going to tip the water jars of the heavens? He keeps going back to that rain analogy. He keeps going back to it time and time again. You're not in charge of the lightning. You're not in charge of the snow. You're not in charge of the rain. You can't yell at the clouds and get them to rain on you and cover you with water. You can't tip the water jars of the heavens. And when the dust hardens into a mass, he's talking about the ground now, when the ground becomes parched, when the ground becomes hard, and the clods all stick together, and then rain comes on them, he's saying, did you do that? Did you tip the water jars of heaven so that they would rain out on the dry, cloddy, stuck-together ground? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Wow, he just went from, if you know anything, that's me. If you see hail and rain and lightning, and th that's me. If you don't know how the universe works, that's me. If you can't explain what the earth is hung on, that's me. 
And if you didn't go out today and feed the lions, but they ate anyway, that's me. I mean, he's being expansive here in his description of his absolute and total control over everything. Do you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? He said, I'm in charge of all that. I see birds every day in my yard. And I see them flying in the heavens, and then they land in giant flocks in my yard. And they're alive, which means they ate today. I didn't feed them. I don't have bird feeders outside. I don't have any grain in my yard. But they land in my yard, and they they start pecking at things. They manage to eat somehow in my yard. I'm not feeding them, but God is making sure that they have something to eat every day that they eat. I don't do it. Anybody here feeding the rhinoceroses? Anybody here making sure the hippos get plenty? When's the last time you fed a giraffe? I mean, you don't do any of that. And God says, I do that. And the scary one would be the lion. Nobody would deign to feed a lion because the lion would make lunch out of you. He says, but I do that. I make sure that lions have prey, that they have something to eat. I take care of their young ones and their babies when they crouch in their dens and they lie and wait in their lair. Who prepares for the raven its nourishment? He went from I feed lions to I feed birds. When the young ravens cry out to God, have you ever seen... You've probably seen video at some point of baby birds in the nest, how they raise up their heads and they open their beaks and they make little chirpy noises so that their mother will regurgitate something into their mouths so that they'll have something to eat. God just said, when they're in the nest crying out, they can't even see yet, and they're raising their heads and they're crying for something to eat, he says, they're crying to me, and I see to it that they have something to eat. That's really tender. He just went from lightning and hail and the universe all the way to I feed baby birds. Do you do that? God does. Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? That's where we'll begin next week. Are you beginning to get some sense now? of why Job is eventually going to say, if you look at chapter 40, verse 3, Job answers the Lord and says, Behold, I'm nothing. I am insignificant. You'll notice that Job does not say, You know, now that you're here, I've got some questions. Instead, once he hears God's defense of himself, he says, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice and I will add no more. In other words, he realizes that all those empty words added up to absolutely nothing. And that God, if he wants to go toe-to-toe with you, every time you're going to end up at you're everything, I'm nothing. So, said all that to say, if all of that is true of him, and there's more next week, If all of that is true of him, and all of that is true of you, then on what basis do you get to put him on trial? 
Now, you know that because you know your Bible. You know what we've read. But then on what basis does any person, even the cynic, even the atheist, on what basis do they get to put God on trial? Just because they don't know it doesn't make it any less true. As long as they are living in God's world, eating God's food, breathing God's air, as long as they have any sort of intelligence, wisdom, or understanding of absolutely anything that God gave them, then on what basis do they get to shake their fist at God? You can see why God says, I'm going to break their arms for their resistance against me. You just don't get to mess with God. That's the point. Kind of sounds like Paul now, doesn't it? Who are you that replies against God? Who's going to say to the, to the molder of the clay, who gets to say, why'd you make me like this? You got no room to complain. All right, I need to let you go. Are there any questions about any of that? I was just thinking about Job uh, and, and God speaking to him directly. And, and that, that humbled Job and, and made him realize that he really wasn't anything at all. And then I thought about the Holy Spirit that does the same thing to us. Um, let me see who I really am. So I can understand how Job probably feel at that time. Yeah, very good comment, yeah. I think it's God who has to show us what we're really like, which is why I keep saying faith and repentance are a gift from God. You will go through the rest of your life in your ego and arrogance <laughs> unless he shows you who you really are. Very good comment. Anything else? It's interesting that Job never got an explanation, and yet God gives it to us. Yeah. God gives us the book that tells us why this all happened, and Job never knew, yeah. at least in this life. Yeah, but would you rather get the information out of the book? Well, I'd much rather read. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was getting at. Or would you like God to show up in a storm and start with, what's wrong with you? We got the better end of that deal. You know, he kind of does that just reading this chapter. <laughs> it's, it's so humbling. Why do I think I'm in control of anything? Yeah. It's active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. Anything else? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.